You're listening to the Sermon Podcast for The Gate Church in Lethbridge, Alberta. For more information, to contact us, or to support this ministry, please visit thegate.org. Good morning, everyone. He is risen. Awesome. Today, of course, we celebrate the glorious truth that Jesus, by the power of the Holy Spirit, was raised from the grave after paying the penalty of death for our sins at the cross as our perfect and unblemished sacrifice. And in that moment, the power of death itself was undone. And now all who believe in Jesus' name by faith obtain forgiveness of sins and resurrection life. 1 Peter 1.3 says, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, According to his great mercy, he has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. Our hope is alive because Jesus is alive. Amen? Jesus is alive. This also means that as as Christians, we don't simply follow... uh, a dogma or a religion or, or an ideology or a list of rules written by some dead person, you know, thousands of years ago or whatever, like most other cults or religions out there. No, we, we follow a real living person. And not only do we follow him, but, but we can know him and encounter him as both our Lord and as a sympathetic and loving friend who, as it says in Hebrews, was tempted as we were, but was without sin, and who always lives to intercede for those who know him. He always lives to intercede for those who know him. So he's the Savior who who met us where we were at, right? He came into humanity in the midst of our sin in order to rescue us from it and restore our relationship with God. And even after he's resurrected... He continues to show us that this is, this is still who he is. A savior who comes to us, who pursues us, who meets us where we're at so that we can encounter him and be changed by him. 1 Corinthians 15, 3-8 says, For what I, this is the Apostle Paul speaking, received, I passed on to you as of first importance, that Christ died for our sins according to the scriptures, that he was buried, that he was raised on the third day according to the scriptures, and that he appeared to Cephas and then to the twelve. After that, he appeared to more than 500 brothers at once, most of them whom are still living, though some have fallen asleep. Then he appeared to James, then to all the apostles, and last of all, he appeared to me also as to one of untimely birth." So what's happening there is one of the first things we see Jesus do after he's physically resurrected is is he appears to his followers. And of course, one of the primary reasons he did this was so that they could all bear witness to the truth that he was, in fact, resurrected, proving he is who he says he is as the Messiah and that our sins have been paid for in full. But yet, I, I also feel like It's incredibly profound when we look at the way he appears to his disciples. And and we're going to go through that this morning. And and what we'll find is that he meets each of them exactly where they were at. And and not to point the finger or, or condemn, 
but to restore them and reassure them. On that end, it's, it's important to remember that only days earlier, most of the disciples had abandoned or betrayed Jesus. Some had doubt or, or unbelief in the resurrection. Some were confused and, and lacked understanding about what the scripture said concerning him. Some were in deep grief and, and in mourning. And, and, and of course, after Jesus was buried in the tomb, they, they were a mess. They, they were lost, purposeless, and hopeless. They didn't know what was going on. Even though Jesus told them earlier from John 14 to 18, 18 to 19, he said to them, I will not leave you as orphans. I will come to you. That's, that's such a powerful phrase. I will come to you. Yet a little while and the world will see me no more, but you will see me because I live, you also will live. And that's exactly what Jesus did. He came to them. After he was resurrected, he came to them and he brought life and purpose to them. And again, what's incredible is that he approached each of them differently according to the way that they needed him to. Robert uh, Capon reminds us that if the gospel is about anything, it is about the God who meets us where we are, not where we ought to be, but while we were still sinners. So this morning, I want to highlight some of these encounters that the disciples had with the resurrected Christ in hopes that it will encourage us to, to remember that the living and reigning Jesus still meets us where we're at today, each and every day, according to our need that he invites us to come to him just as we are in, in our sin, in, in our brokenness, in our weariness, in, in, in our doubts with our questions and, and our anxieties or whatever else. We, we don't have to be perfect to approach him. We don't have to hide our sin and our burdens from him, which is often our knee-jerk reaction, right? But rather he wants us to bring it all to him so that he can exchange it with his yoke, which is easy and light. Joshua Butler, an author, writes, Surprisingly, however, Jesus doesn't come to wag a pointing finger, give us a lecture, and point out all the ways we've made a royal mess of things. No, John writes, God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world, but to save the world through him. God's mission isn't to tell us how dirty we are. It's to wash us clean. It isn't to shout at us to get our act together. It's to invite us to drop the act and be together with him. It isn't to point out our distance. It's to throw us over his shoulders and bring us home. All right, so we're going to go through some of these encounters that people had with Jesus. And and one of the first people to have a life-changing encounter with Jesus after his resurrection was Mary Magdalene. On the third day, the day after the Sabbath, her and and, and some other women had come to the tomb to embalm and prepare Jesus' dead body with spices, which was customary to do. But when they approached the tomb, they were surprised and and they were shocked to find that the stone was rolled away and his body was no longer there. And two angels appeared to them and and, and told them why and said, he's not here because he's risen from the grave. 
And so the women went and they, and they reported this to Peter and John, who also came running to the tomb to find out for themselves. But then after they'd all left, Mary Magdalene stood at the tomb weeping. For she'd figured that Jesus' body had been taken and that she'd never see him again or be able to give him a proper burial. And then this occurred, John 20, 11 to 18. But Mary stood weeping outside the tomb. And as she wept, she stooped to look into the tomb. And she saw two angels in white sitting where the body of Jesus had lain, one at the head and one at the feet. And they said to her, woman, why are you weeping? And she said to them, they have taken away my Lord, and I do not know where they have laid him. And having said this, she turned around and saw Jesus standing, but she did not know that it was Jesus. Jesus said to her, woman, why are you weeping? Whom are you seeking? Supposing him to be the gardener, she said to him, Sir, if you have carried him away, tell me where you have laid him, and I will take him away. Jesus said to her, Mary. And she turned and said to him in Aramaic, Rabbanai, which means teacher. And Jesus said to her, Do not cling to me, for I have not yet ascended to the Father. But go to my brothers and say to them, I am ascending to my Father and your Father, to my God and your God. And Mary Magdalene went and announced to the disciples, I have seen the Lord, and that he had said these things to her. So for me, this is such a profound story. Right? Mary was filled with such sorrow over the loss of Jesus' lifeless body and was confused as to how this could be God's will. You know, but, but this is where Jesus meets her, right? in, in her grief and in her confusion. She doesn't recognize him at first, because of her grief, but then he speaks her name, Mary. And at the sound of him speaking her name, her eyes are open and she sees him. Immediately, we can assume that, that, that upon recognizing him, her, her sorrow is replaced with relief and joy. But we can also see that he appeared to her to not only comfort her in her sorrow, but, but to also give her hope to tell her and show her that everything that was happening was necessary and happening according to God's plan. And this is why Jesus tells her, you, you have to let me go. Do not cling to me. I have to ascend to the Father. It's likely that she had clung to Jesus in that moment. You can imagine it, right? Her recognizing him and just clinging to his, to his feet or to his legs or whatever. But he instructs her to let go because he still needs to take his place at the Father's right hand so he can send the Spirit of God to dwell within her, the helper, which is better. So he's telling her that, that she has to let him go so that he can be with her always. And so again, in, in her grief, she couldn't see or, or understand how God was working in all of it, but Jesus met her where she was at in, in order to comfort her and help her see the, the bigger picture of what God was doing through it all. And I think Mary's encounter with Jesus here reassures us that we can also come to him with our sorrow and, and our grief and with our confusion about what God is, is doing in our difficult seasons and that he'll meet us there with this comfort and assurance of hope. 
and a peace even beyond understanding. Another life-changing encounter occurred later that day when two of Jesus' disciples were, were heading out of Jerusalem to a town called Emmaus. And, and as they were walking there, they were discussing his death and, and what they'd heard about how the, how the women had found the tomb empty. It was then that Jesus appears to them and he asks them, you know, what are you guys talking about? But it says their eyes were also kept from recognizing him in that moment. And so they told him all that they were discussing and how it didn't really make sense to them because they thought that according to the scriptures, he was going to redeem Israel. And then it says in Luke 24, 25 to 34, and Jesus said to them, oh, foolish ones, and slow of heart to believe all that the prophets have spoken. Was it not necessary that the Christ should suffer these things and enter into his glory? And beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he interpreted to them in all the scriptures the things concerning himself. And so they drew near to the village to which they were going. He acted as if he were going farther, but they urged him strongly, saying, Stay with us, for it is toward evening, and the day is now far spent. So he went in to stay with them. And when he was at table with them, he took the bread and blessed and broke it and gave it to them. And their eyes were opened. And they recognized him, and he vanished from their sight. And they said to each other, did not our hearts burn within us while, we, while, while he talked to us on the road, while he opened to us the scriptures? And they rose that same hour and returned to Jerusalem, and they found the eleven and those who were with them gathered together, saying, the Lord has risen indeed and has appeared to Simon. Then they told what had happened on the road and how he was known to them in the breaking of the bread. So these two disciples clearly had a theology problem, right? They, they didn't understand what the scriptures, the Bible, the prophets had prophesied about Jesus, and that's where Jesus meets them. Again, not only so they can bear witness to his resurrection, but to open their eyes to, to the truth of his word concerning him, and the truth set them free. Again, he met them where they were at in the way that they needed him to so that they could see him and recognize him. It's a reminder that we can also come before Jesus and, and come before his word without, without knowing everything or without having it all together, that we can come to him with our, with our intellect and with our questions about the Bible and even in our ignorance and that he'll meet us there in order to lead us into the truth and to help us grow in our understanding. He meets us where we're at. Another life-changing encounter occurs right after Jesus had appeared to most of the disciples and he ate with them, which, of course, was also a life-changing encounter for all of them. But it so happened that... that uh, Thomas, one of the disciples, wasn't around when it happened. I don't know where he was, in the bathroom or something, I don't know. But, um, and so when he was told that Jesus ha had appeared to them, he's doubtful. And he says, unless I see in his hands 
the marks of the nails and place my finger into the mark of the nails and place my hand into his side, I will never believe. And some might assume that with this display of faithlessness and and doubt, that Jesus would want none of him. But miraculously and graciously, the opposite occurs. John 20, 26 to 29, says, Eight days later, his disciples were inside again, and, and Thomas was with them. Although the doors were locked, Jesus came and stood among them and said, Peace be with you. And then he said to Thomas, Put your finger here and see my hands. And put out your hand and place it in my side. Do not disbelieve, but believe. And Thomas answered him, my Lord and my God. And Jesus said to him, have you believed because you have seen me? Blessed are those who have not seen and yet have believed. Thomas is full of doubt. And yet Jesus pursued him and he met him in his doubt. He called to him and allowed him to touch and see his scars. Also that Thomas could be, could be brought from a place of unbelief to belief, from doubt to faith. And we think back when he, when he met Mary Magdalene, he had to say the opposite to her, right? He had to instruct her to, to let her go, let, let him go. But with Thomas, he invites him to touch his scars. See, he meets us where we're at and the way we need him to. And with Thomas, I think it's another reminder for us that we can come before Jesus with our questions and our doubts. We don't have to hide them or pretend everything's fine or think we're somehow disqualifying ourselves when we have those moments of disbelief or or faithlessness because he, who will always remain faithful, even when we are not, he wants to meet us in that space. And really, it's only by encountering him in prayer through his word It's only by asking him to help us believe that we can. He is the author of our faith and perfecter of our faith. All right, the next life-changing encounter with the risen Christ and and probably my my favorite of them all because it's so powerful occurs one morning when seven of the disciples, including Peter, we're fishing in a boat, and Jesus miraculously helps them catch 153 fish by you know, throwing the net on the other side, and then they, then they recognize him as the Lord, and Peter jumps out of the boat and swims, and then it says like the other people just like took the boat in a couple of hundred feet and uh, went to the shore. <laughs> Peter couldn't wait, though. And then, um, and then Jesus serves them breakfast. And, and when they were finished breakfast... Jesus turns his full attention to Peter. Now we can assume that that Peter, who is also known as Simon, was a broken man at this point. Probably carrying deep shame and regret for denying Jesus on the day he was crucified. Not only once or twice, but three times. Three times, just as Jesus told him he would. So I, I can't imagine, you know, how awkward 
and, and humbling it would have been for Peter in this moment. Sitting there eating breakfast with Jesus, all the while sheepishly wondering, you know, what Jesus thinks of him. Wondering if he was angry at him. Wondering if he would ever be forgiven. Wondering if he'd lost it all. But Jesus meets him in that space. John 21, 15 to 19, says, when they had finished breakfast, Jesus said to Simon Peter, Simon, son of John, do you love me more than these? He said to him, yes, Lord, you know that I love you. He said to him, feed my lambs. He said to him a second time, Simon, son of John, do you love me? He said to him, yes, Lord, you know that I love you. He said to him, tend my sheep. He said to him the third time, Simon, son of John, do you love me? And Peter was grieved because he said to him the third time, do you love me? And he said to him, Lord, you know everything. You know that I love you. And Jesus said to him, feed my sheep. Truly, truly, I say to you, when you were young, you used to dress yourself and walk wherever you wanted. But when you are old, you will stretch out your hands and another will dress you and carry you where you do not want to go. This he said to show by what kind of death he was to glorify God. And after saying this, he said to him, follow me. So here's Simon Peter. Again, certainly feeling guilt and shame for denying Jesus three times, and yet Jesus sought him out to meet him in that place, not with condemnation, but with grace. In fact, for each act of betrayal, Jesus gives Peter an opportunity to repent of what he'd done. He asks Peter three times if he loves him. And three times Peter has a chance to confirm his love and commitment to him. Basically, in a sense, undoing his three moments of betrayal. And so not only does Jesus meet Peter's guilt with forgiveness each time, but he also restores him into his purpose as he calls him to follow him and to feed his lambs and tend his sheep and feed his sheep and even to die for him. This, this life-changing and restorative encounter with Peter, that, that, which Peter has with Jesus, is such a beautiful display of our Lord's capacity to meet us in the midst of our shame and in our guilt with grace and compassion. It reminds us that God's desire isn't to condemn, but to wash us clean and to set us free so that we can follow him, so that we can be restored to live the life we were created to live. It's a reminder, again, that we don't have to clean ourselves up or, or hide our sin from him in fear or make ourselves right before we come to Jesus. No, he meets us where we are, in our sin, in our brokenness, so that he can clean us up, so that he can remove the guilt and power of our sin by his blood, so that he can make us right. 
And on that note, the last life-changing encounter with the risen Christ I want to highlight this morning actually happens many years later to a Pharisee named Saul who had made it his life's work to persecute Christians. This encounter happens as he's traveling on the road to Damascus one day in order to find more Christians to arrest and probably kill. But suddenly this light flashes around him, blinding him. And it says in Acts 9, 4 to 6, And falling to the ground, he heard a voice saying to him, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? And he said, who are you, Lord? And he said, I am Jesus whom you are persecuting. But rise and enter the city and you will be told what you are to do. Sometimes I hear people saying that, that they think that they're too far gone or that God could never love them because of what they've done or what they're doing. And, and, and yet in this story, we have a man who made it his life goal to hate Jesus and hate his followers. And then Jesus meets him in that space in order to turn his life around. In fact, right after this encounter with Jesus, Saul's led into the city, and and three days later, a man named Ananias is sent by God to pray over him in order to restore his sight and fill him with the Holy Spirit so that he could, from then on, be an evangelist for the gospel of Christ to the Gentiles. Amazingly, Jesus met him where he was at, and by his grace, transformed Paul's whole life, just turned it around turning him from an enemy of the cross to becoming an agent of the cross. Paul's encounter with the risen Christ is a reminder for us that nothing we've done or are doing can disqualify us from Jesus coming near to us and offering his grace. His grace is greater than any of our sin. Romans 5.10 says, For if while we were enemies... We were reconciled to God through the death of his son. Then how much more, having been reconciled, will we be saved by his life? So like Paul, Jesus came to save us even while we were enemies of God in our sin. Even when we were against him, he came to us and died for us and defeated death for us so that we could have life. And if Jesus was willing to come to us in that state, we can be certain that he'll meet us in any state. If he was willing to die on the cross for us, he's not going to give up on us in any other situation. He's pursuing us. His death on the cross and resurrection from the grave is the greatest proof that he meets us wherever we're at and that his desire is to redeem us and set us free. And so he invites us to come to him as we are, weary and heavy laden, so that we can find our rest in him. If we're in doubt... He'll meet us there with assurance of faith. If we're afraid or anxious, he'll meet us there with his presence and a peace beyond understanding. If we're feeling unqualified to serve God, he'll meet us there with the reminder that that we're qualified and equipped by him. If we're feeling weak, he'll meet us there in his strength. If we're feeling purposeless, he'll, he'll meet us there with a call to follow him into a life of eternal purpose. 
If we're feeling confused or, or perplexed, he'll meet us there with truth and wisdom. If we're feeling sorrowful or depressed, he'll meet us there with comfort and grace. And if we're lonely, he'll meet us there as our friend who never leaves us nor forsakes us. Hebrews 4, 14 to 16. says, therefore, since we have a great high priest... Jesus, who has passed through the heavens. Jesus, the Son of God, let us hold fast to our confession. For we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who has been tempted in every way as we are, yet without sin. Therefore, let us approach the throne of grace with boldness, so that we may receive mercy and find grace to help us in time of need. Wherever you're at, whatever you're going through or struggling with, whatever your need, bring it to Jesus through prayer and petition. He'll meet you there. He wants to meet you there. He sympathizes with you there. He always lives to meet you there and to intercede for you there. But the best part is that he won't leave you there. In fact, it's there where he'll restore you and lift you up. And it's at this point where I also want to remind us as Christians, as spirit-filled ambassadors of the living Christ, that we've been called by Jesus to be his agents in this as well. That we've been called in his name to also meet people where they're at in order to show God's love to them. If they're hungry, we feed them. If they're naked, we're called to clothe them. If they're mourning, we comfort them. If they're in sin, we restore them. All for the glory of God. Our mandate as believers is to be his hands and feet in this, in meeting everyone according to their need. And and this is one of the most effective ways in which we open the door to share the love and living hope of Christ to others by displaying it first, by showing them that Jesus meets our every need, from the most basic needs to our spiritual needs. Ultimately, though, we we can thank God. We can give thanks that through Jesus Christ, by his death and resurrection, we can have the confidence that because he lives, he will meet our every need. In fact, he'll meet us in our need so that we can follow him and walk in new an abundant life. As it says in Philippians 4.19, and my God will supply all your needs according to his riches and glory in Christ Jesus.